The other day I had an interesting experience with my kids. They've been doing some odd jobs around the house and have earned some money here and there. I suggested that during a planned trip to the grocery store that Xavier bring some of his money along to see if there was anything extra that he wanted to buy with the money he had earned. After some initial browsing at the store, Xavier settled on a toy that cost more than what he had earned. What a great teaching opportunity for him, <laughs> or so I thought. Uh, as I began to explain money to him, naturally the conversation about the value of a dollar and how to read prices turned into what he needed to do to get the toy he wanted. I gave him the choice to save his money for that purchase or go look for something that he could afford. By the end of the trip, he had settled on a pack of flavored Tic Tacs, one for him and one for his sister Mia. A trip about him turned into an act of generosity towards his sister. Let's just say his action happened in spite of my encouragement for him to save his money for that toy that he wanted. I had bought into the myth of accumulation, and I was encouraging my son, full of innocence and life and joy, to be able to give his sister that pack of Tic Tacs to save his money for something he wanted. Xavier had fought me off and exchanged accumulation for simplicity and generosity. The myth of accumulation is so powerful and ever-present that we often don't notice it. We also don't see how our habits of accumulation, as well as our expectations of how easy it ought to be to buy something, shape our hearts. The myth of accumulation determines what we value and why. Take Michael. A guy in his early 30s who faces a decision on a job offer that's come his way. Over time, he hopes to be as successful as his parents so that he can give his kids the kind of upbringing he had. And maybe even a little bit better. His path to that future is to succeed in business and save for retirement. His goal is to be an independent, self-made man who takes care of his family and maintains his comfortable lifestyle. So far... He is only at the beginning of this journey towards fulfilling that dream. The new job, though, will pay him more, but he's going to have to move across the country. Now let's take a step back and consider the plot points of Michael's story and the way in which he would tell it and how he has told it to me. He sees himself at the beginning of a journey. Right now, he doesn't have a lot. He sees the end of his journey as a place of financial security where he can consume what he wants, when he wants, whenever he wants, and enjoy the fruit of his success. In light of the way he envisions his life story, what decision do you think Michael will make as he ponders this job opportunity? Naturally, if his happy ending is a big house, a good car, a comfortable lifestyle, he will be inclined to take the job because it aids him in his pursuit of being self-made and self-sufficient. If Michael sees himself on a ladder towards success, this new job sounds like the higher rung, a new opportunity to grow in his ability to acquire more stuff and maintain a secure, comfortable, well-rounded lifestyle. Moving up in wealth is to move forward. And moving down would, or staying the same would be to move back. 
When Michael considers his life, he judges it by the security he hopes to achieve or the status he has already attained. The longing expressed in this story is the desire for stability and comfort. That longing is good. To rest and enjoy the fruit of our labor as part of what it means to be humans made in the image of God. The lie in this story, however, is that accumulation is the goal of life and that it is a good and noble thing for our financial aspirations to be the primary guide for our actions and choices. Success, according to the standard of our society, is arriving at the place where you no longer work, or in some cases, where you can work from anywhere. The problem is we live in a world where that longing and the lie are so intertwined that we have a hard time telling the difference. What we either have or what we don't possesses, possess, what we either have or don't possess become coupled with our identity. What we have or what we don't becomes synonymous with who we see ourselves as. Today's Bible passage comes directly after Jesus highlights the innocence of a child and the purity of faith. The comparison is apparent by Mark. Jesus gives an ideal and then how this principle is applied in the life of someone, as we see in today's story, like the rich young ruler. The conversation begins when this ruler runs up to Jesus and asks Jesus a question. At a first glance, we would likely not notice anything odd about his question until we hear Jesus' response in the form of a question. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? We learn that to attribute goodness to anyone except God in Jesus' day was not common. To say something is good, just as we do today, was to communicate a standard that has been met. For the immediate question, Jesus is challenging the man's evaluation of good. We all have our own standard of good, or what we see as the good life. And this man, as he runs up to Jesus, sees Jesus as someone who can give him a way forward towards that good life. And Jesus' question challenges the man's assumptions. Now, Jesus doesn't just stop there at the man evaluating his life on his own standard of goodness. He immediately re recites the last six of the Ten Commandments in a return to the young ruler as he prepares to engage him. Around the word inherit, meaning acquire or earn. The man is assuming that eternal life is something he can achieve, something he can add to his resume. He was rich. He was comfortable. He had kept some laws. And Jesus was going to give him the cherry on top to ensure he could work his way to the good life. According to his own measurement, the young ruler had kept all of those commandments from his youth. We don't have a reason to doubt him because it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus did not look on wanton hypocrisy with this patient love displayed as he looks at this ruler. Jesus is not deceived by this man. He sees inside of him. He sees the heart of this man. Thus, he challenges the man to sell all his possessions. The natural question 
if we wish to follow Jesus, do we need to sell our possessions? Sometimes there's an issue underneath the issue. And so as we even ask that question, we want to know, will Jesus challenge us to do something that's uncomfortable and we're not sure we really want to do in the first place? And so even as I ask that question and set that up, there may be some angst and Kyle, what are you going to say here? Are you going to say that I need to, to get rid of everything I have? And here's the answer. It depends. It depends. See, it depends on your dependence on Jesus. Here's why. The man leaves grieved. What a contrast to his earlier confidence. The rich young ruler liked playing by a standard he and others could see and wanted that attaboy by Jesus. He wanted verification that keeping the law and the subsequent prosperity would both grant him eternal life and proof that he had achieved eternal life. See, to lose his money would have been to lose himself, to lose what little sense he had of security. It was at the center of his identity. He was fine with an activity that he had built up. He had set the scorecard, and he was relying on himself to save himself rather than depending on Jesus to do it. Jesus takes the man further down his own path. And so you want to find fulfillment by doing for God, then here, do it all. Jesus wanted the man to see the futility of finding satisfaction through doing. But the man wouldn't see it. He owned so much that it owned him. And he left sad. The longing and the lie were intertwined in this man's life. And Jesus gives the man a solution to begin the separation the man is a successful doer. He has done well, so he is rich. It's very easy for him to think that his relationship with God is also a matter of successful doing. And so Jesus gave him something to do that would show dependence not on self, but dependence on Jesus to provide the satisfaction that his soul longed for. The man wanted to know if there was anything he was missing on his score card. And Jesus was saying, you are missing the biggest thing of all. Dependence on me. And so we know which longing and lies are intertwined in our own life when we fight for the status quo. It's why we complain when things are unstable. The scorecard we have used to measure what a successful or good life looks like has been changed in, unst in unstable and uncertain times. And it challenges us to know what it looks like to truly depend on God. And the challenge becomes, are we depending more on self or on the Spirit? So any change or variation threatens who we see ourselves to be when it's based on something external or even an internal vision of who we see ourselves as. We must begin to recognize that who we are comes out of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. See, Jesus does not teach or uphold that poverty is an ideal, but he does as here regarding the awareness of a need that results from poverty as a blessing. 
Poverty can be a blessing, Jesus is illustrating by this, challenging this man to sell his possessions because he's trying to get him to separate the good longing and the lie. See, the great enemies of faith are self-satisfaction and pride, and nothing removes those bulwarks more effectively than poverty and persecution. God created humanity to be needy. He gave us continual reminders of our need for Him and His ongoing provision. Hunger, thirst, exhaustion, need for love, relationship, and intimacy. None of these can be filled from within ourselves. When we look for fulfillment and satisfaction for these needs elsewhere in life, we become bitter and complaining because people and things eventually fail to deeply satisfy our souls and the needs God created in us. We must decouple the longing and the lie so that they can be replaced. Lies are defeated not by being simply removed because they will always be filled by something else. They must be replaced by something that's substantive. And so Jesus shifts from the rich man to the disciples, which indicates that the wealth and possessions that prevented one man from following Jesus are also matters of concern for those who do follow him. The reasoning of the picture is clear. Wealth is often a mechanism we use as an ideal for comfort and satisfaction. Jesus' imagery shocks the disciples. And Jesus' comment on the difficulty encountered by the rich entering the kingdom of God draws its force from the refusal of this particular rich man to abandon everything and to follow him. Jesus is offering an exchange for the rich man. Exchange what you see as the good life for what I say is the good life. And Jesus, as he turns to his disciples, says it's easier for a camel to go through a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom, enter the family of God. Because when you have wealth, you don't necessarily need anything else but if you talk to any wealthy person or someone who has a lot of stuff that ultimately never satisfies because it can always be taken away and so this action demonstrated how easy it was to become so attached to wealth that even an earnest man forgets what is infinitely more important Jesus's warning to his disciples implies that only in meeting the demand of a radical sacrifice and following Jesus into the kingdom is what will bring the true security their souls desire. And Peter and the disciples listen to Jesus and they ask a very honest question. Well, if the people who look like they have it all have difficulty being saved, then who can be saved? Let me translate this to some metaphor that I've been using. We often want to know, how do we know what the score is? How do we know if we're on the right track? Or how do we know if we're even playing the right notes? Are we even playing the right sheet of music? And Jesus' answer to their question is one of the greatest affirmations in the Bible. With men, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. God, eternal life, the good life, being rescued, entering into the family of God is a gift that must be received, not one that can be earned. See, attachment to eternity is something humanity cannot accomplish by itself. 
stability and security is something humanity cannot accomplish on its own. Attachment with God is something we receive through Jesus. And it's something we have because we're created in the image of God. Now the disciples don't get that they've already been attached to the family because they are so used to evaluating what the good life is by the things that are seen. And Peter looks around and says, look, we have left everything and follow you. It's as if to say, clearly we at least got that right. Whereas the other guy didn't, he didn't leave everything and follow you. We left everything and followed you. And Peter is trying to keep score. He's trying to comfort himself. He's trying to look, pull out the scorecard and go, see, like we're at least starting to measure up or we're at least doing better than that guy. He's playing the comparison game. He wants to know, have we at least been good enough? Author. Trevin Wax reflects on an experience with some friends. A conversation between his friends Brandon and Tiffany came to his mind as they walked through the wreckage of their house after a severe fire. And he was asking himself about his own possessions. And he was reflecting and wanting to know, would I be okay without all of this? And he asked that question to Tiffany, who had just lost everything. And Tiffany shook her head. She says, that's not the right question. Trevin says, I'm taking a little back. Why not? Tiffany says, because in your mind, you assumed, of course I'd be okay without this stuff. Trevin says, she's right. I do assume that. See, the lie is not that you wouldn't be okay without it. The lie is that you're going to be happier with it. Brandon nods. Yes, the question you should ask is not, would I be okay without this stuff? But do I think I'll be happier with this stuff? Do you think you'll be happier with certain things? The way the world was run, the way you wanted it to be run, if you had that vacation, if you had that extra large TV, if you got that bonus at work, it's a tougher question because in many cases we say, yeah, we'll survive. We'll suffer through it. But the lie we believe is that we will always be happier if we had it. And it's a tougher question as we reflect on our own life. It pinches and Trevin says, and suddenly I realize that like most people in this society, I'm just as liable to believe the myth of accumulation. The longing and the lie are intertwined in my own heart. I may not believe the lie that money is all I need to make me happy, but I have fallen for the myth that money makes me happier. This passage challenges us to ask where our fundamental anchors of identity lie. What do we attach ourselves to? The scriptures call the act of attaching who we are to anything else other than Jesus idolatry or idols. Accumulation or possessions can be one such fruit for the roots of power, approval, comfort, or control. 
They can shade our sight from the central values and chain our hearts to the wrong point of identity. Few biblical figures are as tragic as a young, rich man as he walks away from Jesus' invitation. But other factors such as achievement, pride, society, and family can also reside in that place that should be reserved for God. Our comfort in these areas become both our barrier to truly following Jesus and a claim on our place for what we think life is about. Whatever we are angry or angst about may prove our attachment is on something else other than Jesus. If others in our life feel hurt, smothered, and overwhelmed, there's a likelihood that our attachment is to something other than Jesus. And they feel that way because we are trying to push them out or make them attach themselves to the very things we have attached ourselves to. And anything that excessively anchors us to the earth rather than freeing us as commissioned representatives from God indicates a breakdown in the discovery process of who Jesus says we are. What is really frightening is how easy it is for all of us to choose earth, to choose the lie because it can be seen rather than choose the longing because our longing should be tethered to Jesus who resides in heaven and he has a higher calling and purpose for us. So the question becomes, how do we begin to decouple idols and our identity? First, it's through attachment to Jesus. We must become attached to Jesus. Right now, you may feel like your world is going great, or you may feel like your world is falling apart. If you are someone who's not a follower of Jesus, we want to get to know you and help you take that next step because nothing in this world will satisfy your soul. You must be attached to Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing. If you feel like you need to respond to Jesus today, it's because he's already attached himself to you. He is calling you and it says you are mine. And so we want you to respond to that invitation. And we must decouple the longing and lies so that they can be replaced with him. See, lies are defeated in our life not by simply being removed, but by being replaced with him and being realigned in our lives daily. The lies are replaced by our attachment to Jesus. Jesus' response is so helpful to the disciples because Jesus himself will make up for every loss we see or experience. That's why we can put give over get because generosity forces us to ask the hard questions. It challenges us to separate the longing and the lie and if we're too attached to any one thing, we will never truly be able to give. And so first, just as Jesus challenges this rich young ruler, we need to ask the right questions about our life. Jesus gives us a different ladder, a different goal. And we must ask Are these words present in our life, if only? You may not use those exact words, but maybe that comes into your mind to say, if only I had this, if only it was this way, then we see that we've attached ourselves to something else. Second, we must practice generosity in all areas of our life. Jesus doesn't just say, think rightly about wealth. He tells the rich young ruler to sell all his possessions, and he commends his disciples for following him, af- following actively after him. 
And so we won't win this battle simply by thinking right truths about wealth. We have to allow the Spirit of God to reject our love away from money and towards God and His people. This redirection happens through practices, which is why we celebrate people who practice give over get, who, who take cookies to a neighbor, who, who spend extra time uh, out of their day to, to watch a neighbor's kid, who maybe takes uh, their neighbor, uh, you know, just some food or someone in the church some food because they're practicing give over get. And for some of you, maybe the challenge to just radically stretch you is to go hand a $20 bill to some homeless person on the corner. And you've never done that because you've always heard all the horror stories or you've wanted to maintain distance from someone unlike you. Or maybe you've wanted to maintain distance from a church so you've never given. Maybe you need to take a step to jar yourself loose from the attachment to your money and your possessions. And place give over get in your life today. And third, we need to realize that this is a project for community, not just as an individual. Here's my honest confession. It's hard for the church to be the church in a consumer society. When our entire world is tailored to meet our needs and fulfill our desires, we cannot help but start to see the church the same way. The church becomes more about what I want, what you want, what we want for ourselves and less about Jesus and what he has done or about the spirit of God and how he can empower you to serve others. And we fight the change and walk away sad. Church, we need each other and when the church together practices give over get not just in terms of giving away possessions or money but in terms of their preferences in terms of the attachment to methods and begin to see we are able to be nimble and flexible and agile for the sake of others experiencing the goodness of God because he is the only thing that is truly good we begin to confront the idol of accumulation in our world by remembering 